Our Father and our God, our chains have fallen off and we've been set free because of the truth. Because you, Jesus, have told us the truth will set you free. And we pray, Father, that in these moments we will have the knowledge of the truth affirmed in our hearts as well as in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are involved in the Signs of Life series, which is about the Gospel of John and have been for some time. And we find ourselves in chapter 18 of that uh, Gospel. 18 has a lot of content in it and involves, first of all, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas in the garden and his arrest, as well as the trials that Jesus experienced, the Jewish trial and the Roman trial. And of course, interspersed in that narrative is the story of Peter's denial. And we have pretty much covered most of this chapter, but I don't want to leave it just yet. I want to reconsider a portion of the Roman trial this morning, a time that it concerns the interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. Pilate, as you know, was the procurator of uh, Judea, the governor of that Roman province, and he had the responsibility of adjudicating legal matters in that region, in particular, the matter of this Jesus of Nazareth, accused by the Jewish leaders. And the accusations have changed from one trial to the next. As you might recall, in the Jewish trial, Jesus was found guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. And under Jewish law, he would be condemned to die. But the Jews couldn't put anyone to death during the Roman occupation, and only the Romans could do that, hence the necessity of a Roman trial. And then during the Roman trial, blasphemy was of little interest to Rome, and so the Jews changed their charge to treason, claiming that Jesus was a threat to Rome, claiming that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews, and that he would, in fact, threaten a Jewish insurrection against Rome. So Jesus was brought to Pilate, and the Jews were asking are seeking some pretext to have Jewish, excuse me, have Jesus executed. Now we've already covered these issues, but we return to the Roman trial because of the significance of a very important issue, an issue critical to the person and work of Jesus, an issue which is critical also to the gospel of the kingdom and to the way in which our culture and society actually functions. It is the issue of truth. We are in chapter 18, beginning in verse 33, for those of you who have your Bible in front of you, where we read, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My servants would have been, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. 
Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what's truth? The interaction that I just described focuses on the character of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Remember the charge is treason. Pilate wants to know if Jesus is the king of the Jews. And, and if he is, his intentions vis-a-vis -vis Rome would be evident. And so Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And after responding with a clarifying question for Pilate, Jesus answers the question in two ways. He answers first by denial, and then he also answers by affirmation. That's the most clear way to define the nature of anything, to use both denial and affirmation, to declare what something is not, and then to declare what something is. And the first thing that he says about his kingdom is that it is not of this world. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus denies that he and his kingdom would be any existential threat to Rome. Existential threat. You hear that term thrown around these days, don't you, in the media? Whenever somebody wants to hype something beyond its minimal importance, they will say something like, uh, the, this person is an existential threat to our democracy. Whereupon I usually just roll my eyes. But for Pilate, you see, he's charged with eliminating any kind of existential threat against Rome. So he's trying to find out if that is in fact the case. Jesus indicates that he's not concerned with worldly power and influence. He has no intention of supplanting the powers that be. He wants Pilate to know that Rome has nothing to worry about from him. He tells Pilate that if he had anything to worry about, it would already be evident his own disciples would be fighting for him. And that's certainly not the case. That's, when Jesus, that's what Jesus says by denial. He tells us what the kingdom is not. And then Pilate presses the question further. Since Jesus had said something about having a kingdom, Pilate picks up on that statement. And he cleverly pursues the kingdom issue from another angle. So you are a king, he says. And that's when Jesus defines his kingdom by affirmation. After having declared what his kingdom is not, now he declares what his kingdom is. But Jesus' answer is not what we would expect. He doesn't describe his kingdom in terms of majestic glory or heavenly rule or reigning over a spiritual realm. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, his description of his kingdom does indicate that his kingdom engages the world in some measure. Verse 37, for this person, or excuse me, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So while Jesus' kingdom may not be of the world, this Jesus has come into this world for a purpose. 
And so I have called this description of his kingdom the epistemic kingdom. Epistemic. That's a curious word to use to describe a kingdom. It's probably a new word for most of you. How many of you find that to be a new word for you? Okay, it's lots of hands. Well, epistemic has to do with knowledge and how knowledge is created and affirmed as being valid and reliable. Indeed, how knowledge is affirmed as truthful. Uh, the word, related word, epistemology, is the science of knowledge. How do we know anything, and how do we know we know anything of certainty? And there is such a thing as knowledge, is there such a thing as knowledge that can be described as true? That's why the word epistemic is used. That's why I would use this term in this way. Because Jesus says this in verse 37, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth. The purpose of King Jesus, to bear witness of the truth. And then he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He says, my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Rome may fashion itself to be a kingdom of power, but Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Jesus' kingdom then is an epistemic kingdom, a kingdom of truth, whereas Rome is a kingdom of earthly power. Truth then becomes a, if not the, critical feature of the kingdom of God. And yet our world has a rather problematic history with truth, doesn't it? It is reflected in Pilate's cynical response to Jesus' affirmation. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Oh, what's truth? Whereupon Pilate turns his back on Jesus and goes to speak to the Jews. Where did Pilate's cynicism come from? Well, I want us to take a few moments to take a brief tour through the history of truth. Now, I know it'll be oversimplified in light of the time that we have available, and I will be painting with a rather broad brush, but I think it's necessary to help us understand the significance of Pilate's response to Jesus' affirmation. What is truth? Let's begin with Plato and the Greeks for a moment. Plato observed that we human beings are surrounded by particulars, Thousands, indeed millions of individual things of many different forms and, and functions. Think of chairs, for instance. There are hundreds of types of chairs. They have similar functions, but come in all kinds of various forms. Plato wanted to know what is the universal concept of chairness, which helps us derive meaning for all chairs everywhere. Is there a universal or ideal chair? That's what Plato wanted to understand. And of course, Plato wasn't really concerned about chairs, but if what was true of chairs, it must be also understood for all particulars, even of human beings. In fact, his question was, is there a universal ideal which gives meaning to all the particulars? Long story short, the Greeks failed to discover such a universal principle. No absolute principle could be discerned which could give meaning to all the individual things. And so out of despair, Plato is reported to have wished, quote, 
it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, he used the word logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Hmm, did you know that Plato was a prophet? A pagan prophet. The Greeks then to be, became to be, you know, came to be more cynical about discovering a universal truth, and that cynicism grew into some philosophies that would uh, be intellectual dead ends, and they would have their influence in and through the Roman period as well, flu, fl, uh, excuse me, fueling the Roman cynicism. One of the philosophies that carried over into Rome was Stoicism. Uh, Stoicism is a kind of grin and bear it kind of philosophy a British uh, keep a stiff upper lip kind of philosophy, right, David? You know what that's about, absolutely. Uh, it's the kind of philosophy that says whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will, do, will be, and I'm sure Doris Day was back there to sing it for them. And we hear it even today. Some people will say it this way. It is what it is. That's sort of a philosophical expression of stoicism. I would boil it down to one word. It would be the word whatever, whatever. So that was one cynical response to Plato's failure. Then there is another philosophical system that began to influence Rome, and that was Epicureanism, and that's rooted in feelings. Whatever feels good becomes the valid operating principle. If it feels good, you can do it. Epicureanism fueled the Romantic movement, but it also led to sensuality in the Roman culture, and maybe even today, do you think? Stoicism is whatever. Epicureanism is whatever feels good. And then somewhat later, there was utilitarianism. That was a philosophy designed once again to detour around the problem of finding a universal to give meaning to all the particulars. Utilitarianism, if it works, do it. That's the philosophy. And we find that to be very much a part of the American psyche and always has been. We are a very practical people. We wanna make sure stuff works. We hear it all the time in the political realm. Does it work? If it works, forget the moral implications. We just simply need to do it. Nike has a slogan, just do it. That's utilitarianism. Utilitarianism has made huge inroads, by the way, into the church. A lot of the church growth movement in recent decades is about utilitarianism. Uh, people have remarked, look at all the McDonald's everywhere. There are McDonald's that fill the country. In fact, all over the world there are McDonald's. We are the church, we want to be all over the world, don't we? And so we should ask, how did McDonald's do it? If McDonald's do it, does it this way, why don't we do it this way? And so utilitarianism starts to infect how we try to do the church. Oh, prayer and the ministry of the word, that's okay, too. We can do that. But we really want to know how we, how we franchise our brand. That's what we want to know. And so utilitarianism leads us into dangerous territory. Those philosophical systems are sort of the cynical response to the failure of the Greeks to find universal truth, stoicism, whatever. Epicureanism, whatever feels good. Utilitarianism, whatever works. All of those systems are designed to avoid the search for truth, the search for a universal to explain and give meaning to all the particulars of life. 
In the meantime, through all the centuries since Rome and following, there have been people that have continued to pursue the truth project, so to speak, that Plato was interested in, trying to define what constitutes truth. And it's continuing even today. There are philosophers who really are serious about trying to discover what constitutes truth. And I'm gonna try to illustrate it this morning uh, this way. There will be people, uh, philosophers, who want to define truth, and they'll, they'll, the current term is justified true belief. They want to define how we know that our beliefs are true. And someone will come along and say, this is what constitutes truth. And so here's a circle that represents truth, okay? And that works out for a while. Philosophers discuss it until somebody else comes along and somebody else says, no, 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 no. That's not truth. This is truth. This is truth. You were right about some things. That's in here. But basically, you were wrong about a lot of stuff. This is truth. And the philosophers will fight over that for a while. Then somebody else will come along. And they'll say, no, 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 no. That's not truth either. This is truth. You guys were right about some things. That's right in here. But this is really truth. And on and on it goes. And people will argue about what constitutes how to discover genuine truth. But what all of those philosophers have in common, and this is important to recognize, is that they all believed there was such a thing as truth. They might disagree on the details. They might argue over the criteria for it. But they all believed that they were searching for the truth, just like Plato was. Until George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel showed up. And he said, you're all wrong. You're barking up the wrong tree. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're on a fool's errand to try to find the truth. There is no such thing as truth. And he said, what you really have is what he called a thesis. A thesis is essentially a set of beliefs and values that a culture uses to sort of navigate relationships and governance and things like that. Assumptions that a culture uses to establish itself. And you might think it's true, but it's really just a thesis until someone else comes along and says, I really don't like your values. I really don't like your beliefs. I think of something different that ought to govern our relationships. And so that person will come up and say, I have something, an alternative for this. And that's called, according to Hegel, an antithesis, an anti-thesis. And there's a conflict between the thesis and the antithesis. There's a struggle between them. And if they're big enough and serious enough, there might even be a revolution brewing in this conflict between the thesis and the antithesis. And so in the context of this struggle, what happens is that neither the thesis or the antithesis wins, but in the end, what happens is a synthesis is produced. Sort of a, sort of a collaboration or a compromise between the two. And eventually, there are 
becomes a cultural equilibrium. People start to live with that. And after a period of time, that synthesis then becomes the new, what? Thesis. The new thesis. And that works for a while until somebody else comes along. And she says, I don't like your beliefs and values here. I have another alternative. And I have another thing that's called another antithesis. And there's another conflict that brews between the two. And they fight over it. Maybe even have a revolution over it. And once again, neither the thesis nor the antithesis prevails. But in the final analysis, out comes what? Another synthesis. And then they makes out all right for a while until it becomes the new thesis. Okay? And that works until somebody then comes up with another antithesis. And you know how it goes, on and on and on it goes. And Hegel basically said, there's no such thing as truth. It all evolves, and what you think is true in one generation is not gonna be true in the next generation. It's all changing, it's all in flux, it's all relative. And so everything is in, in, a, in a mode of change with respect to what we typically think of as truth. And so Hegel was just simply expressing what Pilate did. What's truth? There really isn't any truth. It's all relative, and it's all changing. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, Hawkins, you've introduced us to the way that uh, academics with too much time on their hands spend their time in their offices in the academic world in their ivory towers. They contemplate things like theses and antitheses, and I really don't care about that stuff because when we sit around the kitchen table, we don't talk about syntheses and conflicts and things like that. Maybe so. But back in the 19th century, there was a young German scholar who was living in exile in London. And he had no place else to go, so he was hanging out in the British Museum. And he stuck his nose in the reading room and he spent his time there. And he began reading stuff. And he read the works of George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And he said, I get it now, I understand it. Because Hegel is explaining to him how there are different struggles between ideological systems and it seems to him to explain the workings of the working class versus the managerial class of people. Between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and the struggle that takes place between the classes in the labor area. And the man's name was Karl Marx. And of course, the ideas of Marx, who took Hegel's viewpoints and applied them to the class struggle, then was adopted by people like Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, and later on by Mao Zedong in China, and later on by Pol Pot in Cambodia, and the result was the 20th century, the bloodiest century in the history of the world, because Karl Marx read 
George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, who said, what's truth? There is no truth. There is just a struggle of ideologies. And then the intellectual tree then continued in the 20th century, mid 20th century now, a couple of other Marxists, one by the name of Paul Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, started to examine Hegel's ideas and applied them into areas of power relationships among different groups, some of whom had been ordinarily oppressive in one way or another, and they developed a theory which has come to be known as critical theory. Specifically, they began to apply it to the area of sexual relations and categories in terms of gender identity and things like that. Critical theory. And then not too many years later was Derek Bell, a lawyer and professor at NYU, who was also influenced by Marx and Hegel, Marx and Hegel. And he took critical theory and he said, well, if it works so well in the area of labor, and if it works so well in the area of gender categories, how about race? And so critical theory became critical race theory. And so what? Is all of this stuff simply academic mumbo-jumbo that some overeducated, pedantic scholars with too much time on their hands talk about in their offices? No, you all deal with Hegel every day. We're dealing with Hegel in Ukraine right now because a Marxist madman decides, what's truth? I'll make it up. And we deal with it as well in our cities, and we deal with it in our classrooms. We're dealing with it today. And so it's not just academic mumbo jumbo. Pontius Pilate was just the first among many to say, ah, what's truth? What's truth? That's the predicament that we're in. But along comes Jesus who says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. By the way, that was just the introduction, now it's a sermon, okay? So just. <laughs> Here's what Jesus says about truth in this passage. First of all, truth is definite. I use the word definite because of the way Jesus speaks of it. He uses the definite article. He does not say, I have come to bear witness to truth or to bear witness to a truth or to bear witness to truths or even to bear witness to my truth. He says, I have come to bear witness to the truth, the truth. Truth exists. It is real. It is singular and it is all encompassing. It is not fragmentary or particular. It is universal and absolute. Everything we know about anything is ultimately related to the truth. If you are talking about the stars in the sky or the microscopic elements in the human cell or the unseen creatures in the deepest parts of the ocean or the multiplication tables or differential calculus or human behavior of moral values, all of those things are related to the truth. And it is Jesus who comes to testify to the truth. 
He also says the truth is objective. If, if there is such a thing as the truth, it is certainly objective truth. That means that the truth exists whether you or I believe it. There is truth that can be described in propositional terms. Human beings have the intellectual and linguistic capacities to observe and describe and discuss relationships involved. The truth is to which Jesus refers and for which he is a witness is a truth that can be presented and as one would present facts in a court of law. He's testifying to it. He's the witness of the truth. If the issue has to do with moral or religious values, there is a, the truth about, about what is not dependent on any kind of social development or social construction of reality, as modern day Marxists would say. The truth is not socially constructed. It's not made up by people in a group. If the issue has to do with the, with the science of truth, it means that you can analyze it and describe it and dispassionately and objectively uh, engage with it. Uh, neither beauty nor truth reside in the mind of the beholder, as people want to say, unless you recognize that that mind is the mind of God. In addition to that, truth is also from above. For this purpose, Jesus says, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He's come into the world from where? From where? From heaven. As the song says, I came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, to my debt to pay, thy debt to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Jesus came from above to testify to the truth. Indeed, all truth ultimately comes from God. It ultimately comes from above. Certainly all spiritual truth is that way. The Bible is the word of God. It is the truth of who God is and of who we are. And it's discoverable in the scriptures. That's why we read scripture every Sunday service. That's why we teach the scriptures, not only here, but also in our Bible studies and Sunday school classes. All truth comes from above. Even scientific truth comes from above. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Paul says in Romans chapter one, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Whether, the, whether scientists believe it or not, the role of the scientist is to think God's thoughts after him because all truth comes from above spiritual truth and the truth of the world and the creation. And then Jesus says truth is personal. Not only did Jesus come to testify to the truth, he is the truth. We learned that back in John 14, do you remember that? Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the what? Truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, we may talk in terms of propositions and figures and equations, or even in terms of metaphors and similes, but ultimately God is a person. And his truth, the truth, is personal. And he sent his son as a person to communicate it. And his son is the truth, the truth incarnate. That is the most ironic thing about Pilate's encounter with Jesus. What is truth? And truth was staring him in the face, and he was clueless about it. And then Jesus indicates the truth is binding Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, he says. In the Hebrew mind, the word listen is not really about auditory acuity. 
It's not about talking about what Chris does, adjusting the volume levels in the sanctuary so you can hear what I say. Listening in the Hebrew mind is about obeying. Everyone who is of the truth obeys the voice of Jesus, who is the truth, because truth binds the consciences of human beings. If you find truth proclaimed in this church, you can't just take it or leave it. That's the point. Why are we spending so much time in the Gospel of John? Because in the Gospel of John, on every page and every line, we find Jesus, who is what? The truth. If you're a scientist, truth obligates you as well. You can't take or leave what you discover. Now, you have to do your diligence to consider all the possible explanations. You can't go beyond the data. You have to understand your own biases and assumptions, but the truth obligates even the scientist because truth is binding. We are morally responsible creatures, and our moral responsibility is the key for the truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth. Jesus himself is the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And so, dear friends, are you like Pilate? Are you cynical about the truth? Uh, do you are of the frame of mind to dismiss the very idea of truth out of your minds? Are you like Hegel and Marx, reducing truth to a power struggle of incompatible ideologies? Are you simply pretending to be ignorant of the truth even though the truth is staring you in the face? The Bible doesn't give you the option to be ambivalent about the truth. Jesus came for this purpose, to bear witness of the truth. Heavenly Father, let us not miss this Jesus who is the truth and help us respond to the truth in faith and obedience, recognizing from whom it comes, from God himself, and let us not be taken captive by the errant philosophies of human beings who seek to detour